Hey, Israel Story listeners, it's Mishi. Last Saturday, just as chants of Demokratia started coming up from the demonstration outside the president's house, we said goodbye to my wise, modest, and gentle dad, David Harmon. My father was an educator. He believed in people, in social justice, and in our ability to overcome almost anything. He was an eternal optimist and a patient peacemaker. He guided me through life's ups and downs, and taught me its most fundamental lesson, one that's also the deep premise of Israel's story, that a person is a person is a person, no matter what. He didn't see class or nationality, ethnicity or religion, gender or attainments. Instead, he saw people, and when he saw them, he was genuinely curious about them. My dad was a world-class raconteur, and, as such, encouraged me every step of the way, and absolutely loved our show. In fact, I was in the car with him when our very first episode aired on the radio, and I can clearly remember how proud he was. In the years since, he has pitched hundreds of ideas, and I'd often get excited phone calls from him saying that he had just heard the most amazing story from a cab driver, and here was his number, and I should call immediately. My dad appeared on the show a bunch of times over the years, and today, as one of the many ways I'll be honoring and remembering him, I want to share some of those stories. The first is a piece we ran in 2016 about our family pastime, talking to each other on the phone. Act 1, just checking in. Hello? Hi, Mishy. Hey, Dan's, how are you doing? Hi, Shadow. What's up? Dan's, I, I wanted to ask you something. H- how many times did you talk to mom and dad today? Um... Let's see what time it is. It's about 4 o'clock. I've spoken to mom once, dad once, mom once, four times in total, I would say. And uh, is that is that a normal day or is that a low-frequency day? <laughs> That's pretty normal around this hour. Usually there are a couple more phone calls back and forth in the evening. So sometimes, sometimes they call me together. When they call together from the house, usually it starts with both of them on the line, each one on a different telephone. And then at some point, Mom goes, David, I can't hear anything. Close the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dad closes the phone. And then me and Mom have a whole conversation. Who went what, what did what, 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 what. We finish the conversation. We hang up. And then Dad calls me back. He's like, hey, what's new? I'm like, what's new? I just had a whole load down. So he's like, yeah, but I wasn't there for it. We have the whole thing over again between me and Dad. <laughs> Then usually they'll call again late at night because no one's sleeping over there at the household. And mom's half asleep and dad's talking to me. And then we hang up and crash to sleep. And then first thing in the morning, I'd say 7.38, someone calls me and they're like, hey, what's new? What's up? <laughs> like, what could be up? What, what more could have happened? And, and how, old, how old are you, Duns? I am 45 years old. Okay, one, one second. I wanna I wanna bring Oren up on the line. Um, so one second. I'm just gonna let's 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 call Oren. Okay. Hello. Hey, Ori. Hey, Mish. How's it going? Good. Dan's is on the Hi, line too. Hi, Ori. Hi, Dan. Ori, listen. I have a question. How many times a day, on average, uh, do you speak to mom and dad? 
Oh, I don't know. I'd say about between uh, four and five. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, every morning uh, at around nine o'clock, just as I'm about to leave the house, that's when the first phone call comes. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, I've got a foot out the door, but it, uh, it always ends up being about 15 minutes of uh, discussions of your love life and Donna's life and stuff like that. Uh-huh. That's the first phone call. Yeah. Then around, you know, 12 in the afternoon, lunchtime, I'd say that's when the second phone call comes in. Uh-huh. And about two or three times, uh, you know, towards the evening and once before I go to bed. How many times do you speak to mom and dad? I'd say I talk to mom and dad on average uh, somewhere between, let's say, five and seven times a day. Really? Yeah, that's the rest of the time. You're actually at the house. So they don't need to call you because you're there with them. Every time I call them or speak to them, you're in the house. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Aaron. yeah, of course. And tell me something. Do you think that it's normal that we talk that we talk to mom and dad so much? Sure, it's normal. Forty-three-year-old, forty-six-year-old, thirty-four-year-old no. <laughs> talking to their parents on average fifteen times a day. I'd say it's pretty normal. One sec. Let's let's bring mom and dad on the line a second. Hello. Hi, Mish. How are you, Cookie? Hi, hi Ma. Hi, Abba. Hi. Mom, hi. Hi, hi, hi everybody. Hi, guys. Hi, Mother. Hi, Dad. <laughs> How's it going? Hi, Cookie. Nice to hear your voice. Great. Hi, What's up with you guys? Good. Uh, Ima, who do you talk to the most from, uh, you know, from all the kids? You, of course. You're here. I speak to you all the time. <laughs> I told you. You know that, Miss. You're the one who calls us most of the time. I call you? Yeah, how of many course, times does she call a day, Ima? How many half times? Half a dozen. At least. I mean, half a dozen is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a small amount. Yeah. A very low <laughs> estimate. Yeah. yeah right. A lot, you know. We check, it, we check in all the time. They like being in contact. <laughs> right. Ima. Listen, everybody's making fun of us, but it's, it's silly because I think we're very lucky. We want to be in touch. We like to share all our things that's going on, all the stories. So... Everybody else is missing out. For us, it's wonderful that we have three such great kids, and we love to talk to them, and they like to talk to us. That's the truth. Yeah, it's cozy, it's no? Way. Donna, it's it cozy. cozy. Sometimes it gets a little much, right, Don? Don, sometimes you feel it's a little overbearing. I'm just not a big phone talker, honestly. I'm like the less phone talker in the family. Right. Yeah, it rarely ever happens that I call Mishy and his phone isn't busy. Because I'm talking to Oren or Donna. <laughs> do you think there's any connection between the fact that we're all so close and, and talk so often and the fact that um well i guess let's say that the, those amongst us that did get married got married kind of late in life listen i would i uh, you know don't blame us for you guys not getting your acts together get married that'd be lovely then we'll talk more with the grandchildren goodbye <laughs> Dan Batavon. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And now, back to our episode. So, as you just heard, my dad and I spoke a lot. Constant chatting was sort of our thing. He was 78 when he died, and in recent months, as his health declined, we got to spend even more time together than we usually did. But it was a different kind of time. It wasn't frenzied and action-packed. There were no concerts at the YMCA, or visits to the archaeological wing at the Israel Museum. No heated political arguments around the Shabbat dinner table, or running commentary, increasingly desperate in the last few years, while watching the 8 o'clock news together. Instead, these were very calm and peaceful times. And during those countless hours, we spoke about life and death, about socialism, and education, about Israel and the future, Judaism and democracy, Jerusalem, dreams. He'd tell me nostalgic stories of a different era. See, my dad was born in Jerusalem in 1944. World War II was still raging, and Jerusalem, then a small town of 60,000, was under the British mandate. The state was born when my dad was four, He could remember the celebrations in the street. And the story of his life was, in many, many ways, intertwined with the story of Israel. He fought in two of its wars, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, but believed in peace and coexistence, and worked for many years to improve the Palestinian education system. At the same time, he was a proud Zionist, and was instrumental in many glorious chapters of the Zionist tale, including the immigration operations from the former Soviet Union and Ethiopia. He often seemed to me like a living history book, and that feeling is what I tried to capture in a small story we aired back in 2017, in an episode marking the centennial of the Balfour Declaration, 
Act 2, Not Your Typical Landlady. These days, when most Israelis hear the name Balfour, they don't think of good old Arthur James, his phenomenal facial hair, or his philo-Semitic declaration. Instead, the first association that comes to mind is a street. A street in Jerusalem. Balfour Street. And what's so special about that street? Well, a lot of things, really. But probably nothing more than the identity of the resident living at number three. The Prime Minister. That's right. America has Pennsylvania Avenue, the Brits have Downing Street, and we? We've got Balfour. Abba, do you think that there's some symbolism in the fact that the Prime Minister of Israel lives on Balfour Street? Yeah, you can you can impute symbolism to anything. If you want to think it's a symbolic uh, thing, okay. But this prime minister's building is now, by decision of the government, going to be moved. There goes your symbolism. You know that it's Bibi's birthday today. Mazel tov. I asked my dad, David, to meet me on Balfour Street. Okay, we're going to do. We're going to walk here. This was, after all, where he grew up. Yeah, our home was right down. This street uh, to the left on Disraeli Street, a street named for another British Prime Minister. So would you come here a lot when you were a kid? I walked up and down here all the time. I walked on this street at least once or twice a day, because this was the route that you took from our apartment into the center of town. We set out on a little stroll down memory lane. Yeah, well, this building right here to our right, there were a a number of very important people who lived in that building, The one uh, who lived on the first floor uh, was Professor Michelson, who was my ophthalmologist and prescribed my first glasses when I was nine years old. And uh, uh, on the top floor lived uh, Moshe Sharet, who was Israel's second prime minister. It was his private apartment. It's not a particularly fancy building or anything. It's just an apartment building. It's an apartment building where I walk up, in fact. Charette walked up two flights. In this building also lived uh, Zalman and Rachel Shazar. Zalman Shazar became Israel's third president. Why did all these people live on this one street? Well, it was walking distance from where they worked, the prime minister's office. Just sit with that for a second. The reason all these founding fathers and mothers of the state lived here in modest apartment buildings was because they could walk to work. No limos, no motorcades, just feet. There were also other houses on Balfour Street. Older, single-family houses. Like the one right here to our right, which is where our very close friend Walter Eitan lived. So these were Arab uh, buildings originally? This one. That were left or forced to leave in 48? I believe so. And then they were basically annexed by Jews? Yes. And this building over here, which is a brand new building, brand new, was built in in the 50s, was where a classmate of mine, Nira Barakiva, lived, and we used to have class get-togethers there. Yeah, and across the street in this building lived uh, Amir Shor, another classmate of mine. And Amir and Nira ultimately got married. And uh, These two classmates that lived across the street from each other? Yeah, but they were not going together when we were kids. 
Now, I think it was this building, if I'm not mistaken. That was My dad had stories about each and every house. One was where Alex Kenan used to live. Alex was a professor at the Hebrew University, friend of the families. Another was the home of Yitzhak Nisim. The Sephardic chief rabbi. My dad told me tale after wonderful tale of Jerusalem in the 1950s. But none of them captivated my imagination as much as the story about when he and an unusual roommate shared the big old house on the corner of Balfour and Smolenskin. I've told you the story six times. It's recorded ten times. Again, you want me to tell you? Yeah, again. In uh, May of 1962, my dad, who was then 18, came back to Israel in order to go into the army. He had been living with his family in Washington, D.C. for a few years, since his dad, Abe, was serving as an Israeli diplomat there. My father was going to be what's called a chayal boded, a lone soldier whose family doesn't reside in the country, and he needed to find a place to live. So, a week or two before he was supposed to go into the army, my dad and his dad came to Israel, it was quite a trip back then, to go apartment searching. And that's how, on a warm day of early summer, they found themselves trekking up Gaza Street, in Jerusalem's Rechavia neighborhood. Checking out a few places which I could rent. And as we were walking, a car, a pretty fancy car by the standards of those days, stopped and the window rolled down and an elderly lady poked out her head and said, Abe and David, what are you doing here? The elderly lady in question? It was Golda Meir, who was then the foreign minister, my father's boss, and an old-time family friend. Jerusalem was a small town in those days, a place where it made sense that you'd bump into the foreign minister and start chit-chatting. In any event, they told Golda they were looking for a room for my dad, who was about to go into the army. And she immediately said, stop looking. I live in a house a block and a half away from here, which is all empty, and it would be a pleasure if you just came and took a room there. And two days later, I moved in. What did you think when she said, come live with me? I was delighted. It was a good address, great location, low rent. So Golda was your first roommate? She was not my roommate. We were housemates. I was her boarder. Golda was then living in the foreign minister's official residence at number 3 Balfour Street, which later on became the prime minister's house. What was it like living with Golda? Well, firstly, um, Golda was a very warm and wonderful person. And I would say somewhat lonely. I mean, she was this important woman. She would come home uh, usually late in the evening to uh, usually an empty house. On a typical night, my dad recalls, she would swing by his room and very softly say, David, Hatasham, are you there? And I would come down and we would sit and have tea. And she would take a sugar cube and break it in the palm of her hand and put one half in each cheek. And that's how she drank her tea. And she drank her tea and, uh, and smoked. She smoked unfiltered Chesterfield cigarettes. And uh, we would sit around the table in the famous kitchen, Golda's kitchen. 
and spend hours uh, discussing this, that, and the other. Now, living with the foreign minister wasn't exactly the most normal way to spend your military service. I was in a unit where we were told, uh, and I kept to it assiduously, not to say anything about what we're doing. It was an intelligence unit. So when she asked me what I was doing in the army, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. She said, you can tell me. (laughs) It's okay. My dad lived with Golda Meir for close to four years, and still talks about her, and that period, with a mixture of nostalgia and admiration. As far as I was concerned, in addition to having a good friend, and a very warm sort of mother figure, uh, once I had a toothache, and Golda prepared some grandma's remedy for me with salt which she fried and then put in a handkerchief and I put it on my cheek and um, didn't help mind you but beyond that thinking back I basically had a front row seat uh, during a critical period of this country's development uh, seeing the workings of uh, government to just be a, a fly on the wall while all this was going on, is uh, one of the most significant experiences of my life. Today, Bibi and Sarah live in that grand old house, and things are a bit less village-like than the days in which my dad and Golda would go grocery shopping together, or catch the late-night showing at the Eden Cinema downtown. There's a tall wall surrounding the house, and severe-looking shabakniks don't let you get close. The entire block is now closed off, and we had to get special permission just to stand there and talk. I told him I was just coming through to uh, record some uh, memories with my son. And uh, I said, okay, just don't take pictures. This was totally open when I was a kid. None of these cameras were here, nothing. And uh, there were two elderly policemen at the front entrance. And uh, this was not considered a heavy-duty job for policemen. As we walked back to the car at the end of our little walking tour, my dad noticed a sign in one of the windows. Oh, that's apartments for sale, my God. Huh. Sure, it's apartment. You interested? No. You wouldn't want to live on Balfour Street? Uh, Location is good. Well, this was a great pleasure. Thank you, Abba. That was fun. Yeah. Don't use a lot of it. What do you mean? How much are you going to use of this? All of it. You are not. Huh? You are not. Tov. Yalla. Yalla. Bye. All right. See you later. We'll be right back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And now, back to our episode. My dad passed away at home. Thankfully, we were all there with him, 
by his side, holding his hand. It was peaceful, and amazingly similar to another deathbed scene that occurred almost exactly a decade earlier, and which I tried to describe in this story as part of our season three opener. Act three, a gift from Safta. In the winter of 2012, my older brother Oren got a phone call from a close friend of his. He said, listen, I swim with this girl. I don't know her too well, but she's a, a really beautiful swimmer. And you can know, you can know, <laughs> you can know 80% of a person's character from the way they swim. <laughs> so I, I suggest that you meet her. Later that day, Yael, the swimmer, also received a call. Yes, so... My coach called me and he asked me, can I introduce you to some guy? And I said, sure, I would love to. The swimming coach gave Yael my brother's name, and she, of course, began Googling. At some point she came across an old TEDx talk he had given. Her initial reaction? Well, first I thought he's a bit chubby. Cute, definitely (laughs) cute, but uh, just a little bit chubby. But I thought I will give it a chance. They spoke on the phone and set up a date in Tel Aviv. Okay, so Yekes uh, typically come on time, but Iraqi, uh, and I'm Iraqi, come ahead of time. And I tried really hard not to come early. I thought uh, a man should wait for a woman. And, you know, strategically, I thought it was wrong (laughs) to come ahead of time or early. So I tried to keep busy and not to be early, but... Eventually, I arrived, and Owen wasn't there. I was, again, too early. I thought he should wait for me, but uh-huh. I waited for him. Then I saw him from far away arriving, and he had, like, a light blue shirt and short pants. And you looked very... You were very good-looking, uh, man. Though the cutest part of your dressing was that uh, you missed a button. You know, it was so cute to see you with this open shirt and Mr. Button and shorts. And and I thought, wow, what a man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let's just say it was a pretty unusual date for me, too, because when it ended, we walked towards the boulevard, remember? And, uh, you know, we were about to say goodbye, and suddenly you, you pounced on me and gave me a kiss. Remember? Yeah, it wasn't exactly like it that. Was, it was exactly like that. It was quite a kiss. My brother was super enthusiastic, and they began going out. Everything, at least outwardly, seemed to be promising. But then after about three weeks, I said to Yael, look, I really like you, um, but I, I'm sorry, I really have to think about it a little bit more. Yes, you said that you needed a break, but breaks are the most annoying things in relationships, like... What's a break? What do you need? Half an hour break? Day? Two days? How long of a break do you need? Oren didn't really know what to say. So Yael, she decided for him. She said, don't call me for a month. Yes. (laughs) So Oren and Yael were on some sort of undefined hiatus. He constantly told us, and this was nothing new, that he wasn't sure and didn't know. Anyway, the month-long break was supposed to end, or be reevaluated on his 40th birthday, January 25th. And then on the 20th of January, I met up with my best friend on the boulevard. He said, Oren, your choice has nothing to do with Yael. You have to choose whether you want to continue to be 
a single guy living in Tel Aviv, having fun, or to become a family man. And on both routes, you'll have great highs and happinesses and really frustrating lows, but that's a choice you need to make. Oren thought about his friend's advice and then said to himself, Yalla, ala chayim ve'ala mavet. Sort of the Hebrew equivalent of here goes nothing, or it's now or never. That very evening, I ran to your house on Sokolov Street, number 8. I remember it. I ran and I ran and I ran and ran until I got to your door. And I knocked on your door with the thought of saying, come on, let's go for it. But Yael wasn't home. Oren called her cell and when she picked up, she said that she was visiting a friend in the Golan, that there was almost no cell reception and that she could barely hear him, so they better just talk properly when she returned as planned, a few days later, on his birthday. The next day, Oren and I went to have dinner with our parents, in Kiryat Yovel, in Jerusalem. Now, we all grew up at 53 Shmariao Levine Street, right across the street from number 50, where my dad's parents lived. My grandfather Abe had died many years earlier, when I was in third grade, but my grandmother Zina? She was still alive and kicking, and almost 99. In any event, we all sat down to eat. And suddenly there was a phone call from the other side of the road from Safta's house. It was Melanie, her caretaker. She was hysterical and she said, Come, come, come over. Mr. Harman not feeling well. Oren, my father and I, quickly ran over. We went straight into the den where Safta was sitting in her favorite purple armchair. She was just breathing very heavily. That's my dad, David. She had a small smile on her face, uh, and she gradually breathed less and less heavily as we were standing by her side. We held her hand. And we actually didn't really say anything to each other. No, no, we didn't. I think we all just realized what was happening. At a certain point, she just stopped breathing very simply she just stopped breathing and with her last breath a small tear fell down Safta's cheek what is called in Hebrew a motneshika a kiss of death and it was over that's it Safta was gone now even though my Safta was so old we were all pretty stunned by her death because there was no preparation or illness or hospitalization. I guess we all just figured she'd go on living forever. Within a few minutes, the Magen David Adom paramedics arrived, and we had to convince them that there was no need to try and resuscitate my Safta. Then the police showed up, because that's what happens when someone dies at home. And once they left, we were alone, just the family, with Safta. We tried reaching the Chevre Kadisha, the Jewish burial company, so that they could come collect her body. But no one answered the phone, because it was after 11 p.m., and the very next day there were elections to the Knesset. Clearly they just assumed that people would be so eager to vote that no one would even think of dying the night before the elections. Finally, around 2 in the morning, we managed to get a hold of some sleepy officer on duty. He said that they couldn't make it that night and we should sleep with Safta's corpse and keep her company. 
Um, and so we covered her body with a sheet, and that's it. We just stayed with her. It was a quiet night. And we all sat there with her um, and thought about Safta, each one, his own thoughts, his own memories. And we felt that we were there in her last evening. We were all there together. We all really felt that we were with her, accompanying her on her last night in her house. Gradually, all the grandchildren brought sleeping bags and blankets and spread them around Safta. It was sort of like the pajama parties we used to have there when we were kids. We all just slept um, next to Safta on the floor. Throughout the night, we talked, laughed, reminisced. It was all really sad. She was our mother. She was everyone's mother. She was the mother of our family. Now, that very night, you might recall, Orn was still in the middle of his ongoing saga with Yael. Sure, there were four more days till his birthday, the scheduled deadline, when they had agreed to talk. But Orin, he couldn't wait. Then Orin called me, and he sounded really sad and miserable, and he told me that uh, his grandma, just, his safta, just died, and that you were all with her uh, through the night. And I knew safta. I've been to one of the Friday night's dinners, and I saw how all the family comes and sit around the table, uh, with her, and although she didn't talk, she was the center of the evening, and uh, I knew that it's something really dramatic uh, happened, and I really wanted to be with him. The next day, El showed up and pretty much stayed for the whole Shiva. And before any of us really understood what was going on, Yael had transitioned from being this girl Oren had briefly dated to sort of being a family member. Yael really was with us, almost like a part of the family, and I I didn't realize it at the time, I don't think, but I guess my heart already knew, and five weeks later we were engaged. Yes, we were on a trip in Amuka, and suddenly he went down on his knee, and he gave me a blade of grass made into a ring, and asked me to marry him. Oren had waited for 40 years to find a bride, but all at once his patience was up, and everything happened very quickly. We got married in June 2013, and a year later, in June 2014, our daughter was born. Chuchi, what's your name? Shaizina. Shaizina? Yeah. Shaizina Harmon? Yeah. And who are you named for? For Shafta Zina. Shai in Hebrew means gift. So little Shaizi was really... A gift from Zina, from Safta Zina. Because we felt that thanks to... In a way, thanks to her death, uh, we got back together and Shaizi was born. And I guess Safta leaving us was sort of our family's beginnings. And it was very joyous. Shaizina, was Safta Zina old? Yeah. How old? Um, this old. Are you showing me with your hands? This old. <laughs> My dad's eldest granddaughter, Shaizina, is now almost nine. Since we recorded that story, her brother Abi and sister Sol joined the family. And two years ago, my own little daughter, 
Halel, my dad's youngest grandchild, was born. This is what he wished her from his hospital bed on her second birthday. Hi, Halel, happy birthday on number two, beginning number three. What an adventure you have ahead of you. Love you, sweetheart. Be well. I'm Saba. Abba, what do you think are the most important things that we need to teach Halel? To be a good person. What else? To care about people. About other people. And do things that improve people's condition. My father, David, shall forever be my teacher, my compass, and my best friend. We'll close this tribute with his favorite song in the world, Shoshana Damari's Kalaniot. I love you, Abba, the most and always.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.